we're talking here. We suspended our study on the book of Ephesians for a little bit so that we can, uh, this summer, address the various issues that people at Woodland Hills uh, had and wanted to have addressed. And it's just a good opportunity to take some things that maybe otherwise wouldn't be spoken on and speak on them. And one of the issues that was most frequently asked was, uh, had to do with sexuality. When is sex sin? And things of that sort. We started this last week and I got through part of it and decided that um, we need to spend another week on it because we only got through half of what I wanted to get through. And I'll be reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Part of it's printed in your bulletin, but I want to read some other verses too. I want to start in verse 13. So if you have Bibles, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. If you don't, don't feel out of place, two-thirds of the people here don't have that, so you're perfectly at home. It's just that they don't trust me, so they have to turn to the Bible and make sure I'm not distorting it. Only kidding. First, I want to pray. Father, I, I, uh, I thank you, Lord God, for the gift of sexuality and the beauty of it and the joy of it and the pleasure of it. But Lord, we live in a world where that beauty has been seriously uh, distorted. And we are all, to some degree, Lord, affected by that. And God, there are wounds in our life and sometimes decisions in our life and maybe right now even behaviors in our life that do not reflect the beauty of the gift of sex that you gave us. I pray, Lord God, this morning that you would use this message by the power of your spirit, not, not the power of, of, of a voice or the power of a, of a logical mind, but the power of your spirit, Lord, that you would use this to transform us into the beautiful bride that you want us to be. Lord God, I pray that you'd motivate us to get our lives to line up with your word. I pray, Lord God, that for those who are, have been in any way abused by the ugliness of the perverse sexuality of our culture, Lord God, and they don't therefore see themselves as beautiful sexual beings, Lord, I pray that healing would happen. And for those of us, others, Lord God, who are drawn away in different directions, wounding ourselves and others by the relationships we have right now, I pray, Lord God, you'd break the strongholds of those relationships and move us and motivate us to be your children. We pray in your name. Amen. Here's what the Word says. I was gonna, I'm just going to comment on this a little bit, and then we're going to turn uh, to a couple of issues that we didn't quite get to last week. And as I said last week, I've never been very good at being tactful. Uh, it's not my gift. I'm a plower. I, I you just sort of dump it, and it's there. And so... This is probably going to be kind of frank, and if you have kids who can understand what I'm saying, but you don't feel are old enough to get what I'm saying, or I might be raising questions that you're not prepared to answer at this point, uh, we have a children's church, and you're free to uh, excuse them. Uh, so that's a parental discretion notice here. I'll be using the word masturbation, and, and uh, well, that sort of characterizes the frankness that I'm going to be going with. I just can't come up with other words, and every other word I can come up with is funny, and I don't want to, there's a lot of funny substitutes for that word, but I don't want to get into them. <laughs> Another word on that is that I, I really am not ever intentionally trying to be funny about this. I, I, I was informed by several people last week that I had some double entendres. Uh, you know, if you go outside of uh, God's will, you're going to get all screwed up. And, and when I say stuff like that, I don't have a double meaning intended. It's almost impossible to speak on this subject without coming out with puns, you know, getting in the end zone and all sorts of other stuff. And believe me, I'm trying to be totally unfunny in this. So 
If you snicker, snicker underneath your breath. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Paul says this, Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Here's what Paul's getting at here. As natural as food is to the stomach, so natural is, for most people anyways, the sex drive for the body. But not the sex drive as lived out in an immoral way, but the sex drive as surrendered to the Lord. The body was never meant for immorality. And that gets at the topic we talked about last week about how when we go outside of the guidelines of God, God got this beautiful gift. It's a wonderful gift. It's a pleasurable gift. It does a lot of good in individuals. It does a wonderful thing for the family. It does wonderful things for the society when it is lived out according to God's Word. But when we don't do that, as much of a blessing as it can be, so harmful it can be, and things get all mixed up, the body was never meant for immorality. Now, it feels like the body was meant for immorality when you're involved in it. It feels great. It feels good. It feels wonderful. It feels natural. But as a matter of fact, you are doing something. You are using something that God gave you in a way that God never intended it to be used. And you're going to get, no pun, all screwed up. It's going to mix things up. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have consequences. It was never intended to be used that way. It's like swallowing cyanide. The stomach was meant for food, but it wasn't meant for cyanide, it wasn't meant for rotten food. When you eat that, you get food poisoning. You ever had food poisoning? It's really gross. You can set world records on how far you can throw up when you have food poisoning. It's like your body goes, ugh! And it's called projecting. I did it once on a bunch of nurses in a hospital. Anyways, um, I just thought of that. I warned them too. I said, hey, if you don't lay me back down, I'm going to throw up. And they go, oh, you can hold it. No, I can't. Yeah, you can. And boom. And then they have stripes all over there. But the body rejects food poisoning so also, it's against the nature of the body. However well it feels to do, it's against the nature of the body that God created to be involved in sexual immorality. And it has its consequences when we get involved in it. And a lot of, a lot of the harm of uh, the society that we have, a lot of the kids that these people minister to and that we're trying to minister to, are casualties of what happens when people begin to take matters into their own hands and try to outsmart God and do things their own way. The body was never meant for immorality. It was meant for the Lord. When two people share sexual inti intimacy in a marriage context, they are surrendered to the Lord. Because sex was meant to express, in a marriage context, something of the union of the Godhead, something of the ecstasy of the Godhead, something of the pleasure that God has being God. That's why He created it. Let us make man in our image. Male and, male, male and female, He made them. But when we use it in any other context, things get all mixed up. Then Paul says this. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us up also. He's, Paul's just saying that to show that God is the Lord of the body. He cares about the body. How do we know? Well, one way we know is that He's going to raise the body on the last day. The body belongs to Him. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Think about that. Your, your bodies, your sexuality is... is, is is a member of Christ Himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with, say, a prostitute? Paul is just using one example of pornea here. Never. He uses the Greek, Greek word megenito, which is, don't even think about it. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? 
For it is said the two will become one flesh in Genesis chapter 2. You're uniting yourself physically and spiritually to a prostitute. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Therefore, okay, flee from sexual immorality. Get as far away from it as you can get. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. There's something uniquely destructive about sexual sin. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let me just bring one, one major point out of this whole passage here, and then I'm going to talk about a couple of issues. The most fundamental thing Paul's getting at here is this. For the believer, the fundamental motivating passion of the heart, and therefore the fundamental reason why we are to, however difficult it is, move out of sexually immoral situations and relationships, the fundamental motivation for that is, has nothing to do with practical considerations. There are a lot of practical reasons why a person should abstain from sex before marriage. There's a lot of reasons why God told us to abstain from sex before marriage. Why God told us to abstain from sex outside of the marriage context. There's a thousand and one reasons, individually and in terms of our relationships and in terms of our kid and in terms of society. There's a thousand and one reasons why we should listen to God. He knows what he's talking about. He's pretty smart. He designed the thing. He knows how it runs. But even apart from all those considerations, apart from you might get pregnant, apart from the fact that you might get a disease, apart from the fact that it might cause psychological problems, apart from all of that, the believer has this motivation, and this is what drives you. Whether you see the... So that we will be usable in your hands to a world that so desperately needs to know that there is hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. And this is what drives you. Whether you see the practical considerations or not, it's obedience to the Lord. To make Jesus Christ Lord of your life. Amen. Is to make Him Lord of your mind and to make Him Lord of your heart and to make Him Lord of your body. And when you are saved, the Bible says that you are united with God. You are now part of His body. You are His bride. You're united with Him, Paul says. And therefore, Paul says, don't go around uniting yourself to a prostitute. Don't go around uniting yourself in any kind of sexual immoral situation. It's tantamount to committing adultery on the Lord. He contrasts being united with the Lord with being one flesh with someone who is not your marriage partner. You're married to Jesus Christ. When you are involved in sexual relationships in the way that is ordained by Jesus Christ, you are glorifying God in your sexual relationships. A passionate sexual relationship in a marriage is something that I know God smiles at. He made it that way. But when we have sexual expressions, relationships outside of what Jesus Christ has ordained to happen, we are defiling the Lord. We're defiling ourselves. We are cheating on the Lord. And that is a very serious thing to do. You are redeemed. You're bought with a price. You are not your own. You're a servant of Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not take your own impulses and your own drives and your own longings, which are perfectly good in and of themselves. Perfectly good. They're given by God. But do not use those as though you owned them, as though you had the right to say that you can do whatever you want. You belong to Jesus Christ. He paid a very high price for you. Honor Jesus Christ, therefore, with your body. He's filled you with His Spirit, Paul says. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, do not defile the Spirit of God within you.
by being involved in things that the Lord just would not have you to do. Sex is beautiful, good, and you as a sexual being, your sexuality is positive, good, wonderful, affirm it. And then wait to use it in the right context that God ordained it to be used. Now some people say, well, there are extenuating circumstances. Okay, I'm going I'm to be as, as brass tacks practical as I can possibly be here. We love each other so much. We love each other so much. You just don't understand. You know, it feels so, so right. It feels so natural. We even prayed about it. and it just got, we, we got the green light from God to do what God says that, that, that we're not supposed to do. But in, in our case, see, we have this relationship and he understands and it's just beautiful and, and, and we're really already married in our heart. And what is a piece of paper? What kind of legalistic, uptight preaching is this that you're going to hang so much on a piece of paper? You know, isn't that just kind of immature? I mean, we, 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 we're mature adults. We feel this union. with these. We're, really, we're really already married and, and it's, it's just right. And I've been single and so don't think that I'm just making that line of thought up. I, you know, I... Here's the thing. Here's, here's the bottom line on that. First of all, it's a very, very dangerous thing to ever start deciding what is right and wrong, true or false, on how you feel. Very dangerous thing. Feelings are the most fickle and vulnerable and hormone-susceptible things in our life, okay? Yeah, I got a couple of amens out of that. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, they'll, they'll do the thinking for you, those nice little hormones, which are of God, yes, but they'll take over the ship if you don't watch it. See, the problem with sin is this. The problem with sin, the problem with the fall, this is what we struggle against, is that it feels so natural. If, if, if sex always felt awkward or painful, no one would ever do it. The problem is that it always feels so natural. It always feels like you're the exception. It always feels so right. Oh, yeah, everyone else, you know, yeah, for them it's, it's wrong, but we're special, we're unique. This is a special consideration. No one really could understand or enter into this particular situation. And it always feels so right. And on a biological level, it is natural. Do, but feelings cannot decide truth. You know that pedophiles feel perfectly natural having sex with kids? And they think everyone else is a little bit weird for not having that. But see, in a fallen world, our feelings are often mixed up. That, that's what we struggle against. What feels right often is not right. This flies directly in the face of this pervasive, diabolical, cultural assumption that if it feels right, it's okay. If it feels right, just don't think twice. Just clap your hands and enter some vice or whatever it's, I don't know. But uh, that song, hey, James Taylor, yeah, it's, it's the assumption out there. You know, how does it feel for you? You know, how do you feel about this? How do you feel, 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 folks? What's got to decide, you, you know, when, when the ship is at sea, and we are all at sea because we're tossed to and fro by, by sexual impulses all over the place. When a ship is at sea, you've got to find some stable point to set your bearings on. You know, because the ship is getting tossed all around. You've got to find that lighthouse or find that star that's unaffected by all the currents and set your bearings on that. And in this sin-torn situation that we're in, the only thing that we've got that is really solid, will not move, invariant, absolute, is the Word of God. Set your focus on the Word of God and make the decision that your feelings have got to eventually come to conform to the Word of God. But do not compromise the Word of God on the basis of your feelings. The second thing is this. However loving it feels to enter into sexual relationships with a person before marriage, and it does feel natural. Biologically, it is natural. 
But it is, from God's perspective, not a loving act. Now, follow me on that. I'm not questioning your love. I'm questioning the nature of the act. A person before marriage who encourages their partner to engage in premarital sex is not doing a loving thing, though they feel loving for doing it. Because as we've seen, the body was not meant for immorality. And you're encouraging your spouse, and you yourself are entering into something that is inherently at odds with the way God wired you, and it has consequences. You're doing something that is inherently defiling the relationship, compromising the relationship between that person and God, and love doesn't do that. You're calling a person to cheat on their Lord, and love doesn't do that. You're getting them and you're getting yourself to be involved in something that is inherently harmful to you, and love doesn't do that. What love does before marriage, before, before marriage, what love does is say, because I love you, though it feels right, though I want to, though it be pleasurable, I will abstain because I love you and I love the Lord, and therefore I will abstain. That is the most loving thing you can do for another person. Everything short of that, whether you can see it or not, is not benefiting them at all. It's benefiting you in terms of pleasure, but it's not benefiting them at all. The other thing I'd say about that is this. If, if you love a person that much, if, you're, if you really are sure that you're, you want to be committed to them for life, some people say this, well, we live together, you know, and, and, and we're just sort of married anyways, and, and uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, God knows our heart, we're married in our hearts. Well, if you love each other to the point of being committed for life, and get married. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's there for, folks. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to marry than to burn. To burn with passion. And for some of us, those are the two options. But those are the only two options. You're burning with passion. You're burning with love. You, you know, every bone in your body, every cell in your brain, every hormone that you have is saying, you know, leap forward, leap forward. Well, then get married and leap forward. But not until then. And as for that little piece of paper that says you're married, that is a very important piece of paper, and it's not about a piece of paper. Marriage, as it's defined throughout the whole of Scripture, is this. It's a covenant that you enter into. With yourself, you make a promise to yourself. With your, with your spouse, you make a promise to your spouse. With God, you make a promise to God. And with the whole of humanity, with the society at large. It's always a public thing. Throughout the Bible... Find one covenant that God ever made where he didn't have some kind of public seal for it. A covenant in the word of God becomes a covenant when you seal it. When there is a public declaration of I will do this. This is my part of the deal. This is my decision. That's what makes a covenant a covenant. And it's not a solid covenant until that is done. It's about what God does in you. It's about what you do with another person. And it's about what you do to the society at large. And a piece of paper says that you have done that, but the marriage is not a piece of paper. It's a covenant that you've sealed. And until that point, the Bible would have you to wait. The Bible would have you to wait. And it's a beautiful thing to enter into that. And if you're committed to this person to the point where you think you can become one flesh with them, then hold off, learn discipline, and make that covenant with them publicly, before God, before the church, before all. And then live out the gift that God has given you. For married couples, I gotta, I gotta move on here, but you know, I, I, I hear this sometimes, and, and where a person say, you know, person involved or thinking about getting involved in another relationship outside of a marriage, and it's more common than we'd like to admit. But you feel like this, maybe, you know, your your husband is just a cold jerk. 
and your wife is just a passionless mannequin. And the marriage is bad. And she doesn't understand you, and you don't understand her, and you got married for all the wrong reasons, and, and it's just yicky, it's just awkward, and it's very, very painful. And here is this person, this wonderful person who understands you, laughs at your jokes, thinks that you're the world. And your chemistry is right, too. I mean, it's just, ah, how wonderful for God to finally have given you somebody that you can really relate to. I had a friend call me up last year with this very scenario. And at a human level, i got to say this. I can understand that. I, don't, I can, on a human level, totally enter into the pain. And there's, Socrates said, there's no one more lonely than a person involved in a bad marriage. And it is painful. It is really the pits. It is. And on a human level, everything in me, on a human level, says, I, man, I, I, you know, who couldn't understand that? But from the Word of God, and God knows what is best, i got to say this. The Bible, the Bible never promised, the Lord never promised us a wonderful marriage. Find me a verse where God says, hey, and all your marriages will be wonderful. What the Bible does promise, what the Lord did promise His disciples, is that they'll suffer. Hallelujah, glory to God. <laughs> Blessed are you, the Bible says, when you suffer for righteousness' sake. And throughout history, we have examples of believers who, out of integrity to the Lord, wanting to honor the Lord, were willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. And what that meant for some of them was watching their little kids get eaten by lions while Romans were just having a jolly good time. But they would not compromise the Lord, though it hurt. Incredibly, they would not compromise their walk with the Lord and deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ, even to spare their own kids getting slowly chewed up by a lion. Sometimes the Lord calls us to suffer. He doesn't ordain that kind of stuff, but it happens. And when you walk with integrity with the Lord, there's going to be painful times. And some of them are very painful. And I don't know much short of being eaten by a lion that is as painful as being involved in a bad marriage. But the Word says this. What is honoring to God? What would honor God? is for you, however painful it is, to cut off that relationship and flee from immorality and invest yourself back into that marriage and work on it. I'm not going to give any, any sugar-coated promises here. But I'll say this, that, that the, Lord, the Bible says, blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness' sake. And it can happen that it can happen that, that you stay in a marriage just because it's the right thing to do and you suffer. But I'm here to tell you, and I can, talk, I can tell you this out of my experience, because when Shelly and I first got married, it was a little rough. Oh, that's an understatement. It was a lot rough. We had some real hard knocks, some real hard times to go through. And there were times when I think we got to the point where the only reason we stayed married was because it was the right thing to do. Uh, I, and I, I'm here to testify, and I don't make this a sugar-coated promise, but it can happen that God, if you, if you give him the open door, that God can take something which is, which is really bad and make something that is really beautiful out of it. There's nothing more beautiful than when God rejuvenates your love for a person. And it's not you. Right now you could be saying, but you don't know how hopeless, how low, how beyond hope my, my situation is. And I'm here to tell you that what is hopeless to humans can be possible to God. 
Praise God. And I'm not, believe, I'm not trying to sugarcoat this or anything like this. I'm not trying to make this like, oh, every marriage is going to just work out wonderful. I'm not saying anything like that. But I am saying this, that the Lord calls a husband and wife to love one another as he has loved the church. And what, the way Christ loves the church is this. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, while we were yet by nature children of wrath at war with God, in that state Christ laid down his life for us. He showed us his love when we didn't want his love. And that's what turns us around and wants our love. And in that light the Lord can give you the opportunity if you're willing to suffer for it. And this is the price you pay for it. But the Lord can bring this about. It gives you a love to lay down your life for your enemy, and sometimes your enemy feels like your spouse. But to do that, you got to cut off the other relationship, flee from the other relationship, seal up the other relationship. What about, having said that, let me say this, what about for those of us here, and there's a lot of us here, for whom this is too late? And you're sitting here, and you're, and, and, and you're thinking, man, I, I cheated on the Lord. I, I've been involved in sexual immorality. I've been involved in adultery. I'm involved in a relationship right now that I just don't feel like I can get out of. Am I going to be dirty forever? Am I going to be a second-class citizen of heaven forever? Or I've ruined it, and and now when I get married, I'm not going to be a virgin. What about that? I can speak out of experience here, too. What you've got to know is that sin, sin is a... Sexual sin is a defilement, and it's serious, and it's ugly, and it's harmful. But there is no sin that is not forgivable, praise God. There is no sin that's not forgivable. Amen. Let me just share with you this story. In John chapter 8, they brought the woman that was caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. You know the story in John chapter 8? It's interesting they brought the woman, but they didn't bring the man. It's kind of a double standard that's been continuing to this day. But this woman, at least, you know, for men it's understandable, but the woman should be punished with being stoned. And so they, they, the, the religious uptights brought this uh, a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, in the very act of adultery, and the Bible doesn't scr- describe that, but I doubt they gave her much time to get dressed and combed her hair. Right in the act of adultery, they yanked her out of her tent and brought her and threw her at their feet of Jesus. And, they, and, and they're trying to trip Jesus up, and they said, well, what should we do with uh, this adulterous woman? In the very act we caught her, no getting around this one, we caught her. What are you going to do, Jesus? And the Bible says that Jesus just bent down and, and, and wrote something in the sand. It doesn't say what he wrote, but he wrote something in the sand. And then he said, okay, good idea. Let's stone her, huh? Let's stone her. And how about if we let the person who is totally free from sexual sin cast the first stone? Ah, there we go. And one by one they walked away. And Jesus said to the woman there, scared to death, thinking that she's this close to death, where are your accusers? She goes, there are none left. And then the Lord hears, then the Lord says this, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. A couple points on this. Some of you need to hear these words, and you need to hear it very loud, and you need to hear it very clear. The Lord says to you, when you turn to Him and say, I'm sorry, the words, neither do I condemn thee, are for you. And that before the Lord, because of the work of the cross, because of what He did for us, because he bore on him. Part of. We can be cleansed as far as the east is from the west. Our sins are cast from us. And that's true about you. 
Here again, don't go by your feelings because the enemy can use your feelings against you and you can feel dirty and feel grimy and feel like there's just no hope for you, but you've got to hear the Word of God that's more powerful and more true than any feelings you ever had. And the Word of God says there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, and that applies to you. Neither do I condemn thee. You can be before the Lord a white, spotless, pure, blameless, lovely virgin, his bride, once again. And that's a true thing, as though it had never happened. There's forgiveness in the Lord. And then we need to hear this thing too. The Lord says, where are your accusers? And there are no accusers. And there still can't be any accusers, especially in the body of Christ. There's no place in the body of Christ for anyone to feel that they are in any sense, regardless of what has been done, a second-class Christian or just sort of, sort of Christian let the person in this congregation who has been totally free of having sexual sin in their mind, in their heart, in the deepest recesses of their heart, maybe in their behavior, let the person who's totally free from that cast the first sort of superior glance. Go ahead and do it. Cast the first stone. Cast the first criticism, the first accusation. Well, you know what I heard about this person? In the body of Christ, there's no room for any sort of thinking like that. Because in the body of Christ, we're all nothing but a bunch of forgiven sinners. And in Christ's blood, we have our standing and in nothing else. We're on an equal level. And I don't care if you've been a prostitute for 25 years on Hennepin Avenue. If you're here this morning and you want to accept the forgiveness of God, you and I see eye to eye. We're on the same level. There's no gradation whatsoever. No accusation or condemnation. Amen. Praise God. We're free. And I want you to know... There's freedom in Christ. The enemy will try to use your past stuff and keep on salting that and bringing guilt and condemnation so you feel like you're not worthy to be involved in some ministry because of what's gone on in the past. And in terms of your relationship with the Lord, it's a lie. Spell it as a lie. Sometimes, I want to say this, sometimes, I mean, there's a reason why the Lord puts up these strong guidelines. There's a law of cause and effect that has to operate in the world. And sometimes things we do in the past have repercussions on us in the present, even after we've accepted the Lord. You may have contracted a sexually transmitted disease and you still got it and now you're a believer. You're, maybe you were a believer when you got it and now you've repented of that, the disease is still there. Maybe you were heavily involved in pornography and those pictures and those movies keep operating in your head. Because there's just a law of the way God sets things up that memories work like that. Maybe you have a child that was born out of wedlock and that child is still with you. Maybe you've blown a marriage relationship and you're back now, but it's very hard to get trust again. Some of those things are natural repercussions of mistakes we made. Two things on it. Number one, know this most importantly that God is not punishing you. God punished Jesus Christ for you. To think that God's punishing you is to say that Christ's work is not sufficient. Sexually transmitted disease, for example, is one of the natural consequences that happens when people start living outside of God's guidelines. Things get all mixed up. But right now, if you have got that, you've got to know that that's not about your standing before God. You're forgiven of that. The fact that you have it still has, is not about God punishing you. 
And literally, for Christ's sake, the little child you've got, the little child you've got is a gift from God. How it got here is irrelevant to that point. Never begin to wrap up past failures with your child. I just got a strong one. Strong, strong heart for that. That child is beautiful, a gift from God, precious, and the fact that it was conceived out of wedlock is utterly inconsequential. That's a past fact buried under the, the, the cross. Love your child as the gift that she is from you. The second thing is simply this. Do whatever's in your power to take care of the practical stuff. You got uh, lingering trust problems in the marriage, do what you can to take care of them. You know, maybe you need to go to counseling. Maybe you need to get involved in a small group. And be out loud with that. I guess here, if you're going to be healed by that stuff, this has got to be the kind of place where people can say, you know what, I really struggle with the fact that I've got a sexually transmitted disease and I feel like that's a continual reminder of my guilt. There's got to be a place where you can say that out loud and where people can begin to manifest the love of Jesus Christ towards you in the midst of that. And about marriage problems and about kid problems and about psychological problems and all this stuff, all the baggage we take with us from stuff we've done in the past. But it's not about your guilt. Because in the cross, there's total forgiveness. The final thing that I, 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 I want to talk about is this. That's an important topic. It's about masturbation. A weird note to close on, to be sure, but... Uh... Okay, I'll make this as brief as possible. But this is an important topic. Here's one of the reasons why it's an important topic. Because probably every person in this congregation struggles with it. Statistics say that 98% of all males get involved in masturbation and something like 77% of all females. And the Lord only knows how much of that is truth and lie, but I don't think it's people are lying on the side of doing it. All right. And in our culture, people wait. The average age that they get married now is between 25 and 26. In most cultures, it's 13, 14, and 15 years old, and it's arranged marriage, which is really nice because your sex drives kick in about the time you get married. That's kind of convenient. Here, we, we, we procrastinate the thing. Not only that, but it's a proven fact that people are maturing sexually earlier. Did you know that? The first study ever done on uh, uh, menstruation in the 19th century, women had their first period at the age of 17. Nowadays, they have it between the ages of 12 and 13. We're maturing faster. Now, that means a lot of different things, but one of the things it means is that we got a lot of people walking around pent up. <laughs> I was trying to think of the appropriate word. Uh, frustrated. It's, every study has shown that we use four times the amount of cold water they used in the 19th century because we got a lot of... <laughs> you want to make millions, go into selling ice. You know what I mean? It's, no, but... but, but this is an important issue. So, so most people have a 13, 14-year-old gap before they get married where their sex drives are really kicking into gear. In fact, I'm told that males hit, hit their peak between 15 and 25. Females, I understand, is between 25 and 35. Why it was designed that way, I don't know. Maybe it's the result of a fall, but that's one of those things. So at the prime, they're dealing with their sexuality and no way of dealing with it except maybe masturbation. Okay. The other thing i got to say about that is this. The Bible is altogether silent on this issue. And it's not because the Bible assumes that it was obviously wrong. The Bible never assumes that anything is obviously wrong. you got five passages that talk about bestiality and how wrong that is. The Bible doesn't take for granted that people know that. It doesn't assume very much. When it, when it feels like something's wrong, it speaks against it. There's nothing about masturbation in the Bible. I mean, it's just not mentioned. I'm sure it wasn't because people hadn't thought of it yet. It's not a modern invention. <laughs> 
Well, those Hebrews were really dumb. They hadn't figured. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Onan in the Old Testament is not an example of God punishing someone for masturbation. I was told that in second grade in Catholic school, I was told that God struck Onan dead for spilling his seed on the ground. Now, I didn't even know what masturbation was. I thought it was some guy whose last name was Bation or something. Uh, I thought the Statue of Liberty was, was the statue of a saint named Liberty. I, I was all confused, but, but I didn't know this. I was never going to do it. <laughs> Whoa, you know, God struck him dead. And maybe God won't strike you dead, but he certainly can cause blindness easy enough and maybe mental retardation. <laughs> All right. A, th a thousand jokes just went by the way. Uh... Okay, and there's a lot of Catholic boys who have developed paranoia uh, over that issue. Onan was about disobeying God. God commanded Onan to have a child with his brother's wife after he married her because his brother died, and Onan disobeyed and pulled out at the last minute, and God did strike him dead. Bizarre sort of story. It's got its own problems, but the point of it is certainly not that masturbation is wrong, and it's certainly not that birth control is wrong. It's that you shouldn't disobey God. Okay, given the fact that the Bible's silent on this issue, that means that whatever opinions we have on it are going to be opinions. I mean, I can't get dogmatic about this and preach it like it was equivalent to the atonement or something. You just, we have to try to extract biblical principles as we think through this issue. There's two schools of thought, and a lot of them in between, but the two basic schools of thought are this. It's terrible and it's okay. <laughs> there you go. There's a number of... of... <laughs> now you deal with it. I'm, I'm getting embarrassed up here. Very informative, aren't I? There's one school of thought coming mainly out of the Catholic tradition that says it's wrong, sex is for procreation, and this doesn't lead to procreation, therefore it's wrong. The Bible never says that sex is for procreation. I think it assumes the opposite. But anyways, um, but there are some Protestants who hold this view. Bill Gothard, for example, uh, says that it's always wrong. He even has his own cure for how to help somebody who's dealing with masturbation. He gave it at a minister's conference that I attended, and I'm not even going to repeat it, but it makes me shudder. Uh, there's another school of thought by Dr. James Dobson, for example. He holds this position, uh, Charlie Shedd and others, who say that not all forms of masturbation are wrong, that some forms of it can be seen as natural. Charlie Shedd even said it can be a gift, a gift that God gives adolescents so that they don't get involved in fornication and adultery. Okay, two schools of thought on that. I'm just going to give you what I think about it, okay? And I'm just going to make two points in closing. Number one. Even if you come to the conclusion, and I'm talking mainly from the perspective of a parent dealing with uh, uh, your kids who are coming of age, but I don't mean to portray this as simply a kid problem. This is something adults deal with, okay? But apply it on your own. I'm talking mainly as a parent here. Even if you assume that it's wrong, I would offer this bit of advice. Be very careful to not equate masturbation with adultery or fornication. The fact that the Bible is consistently and unanimously speaking out against adultery and consistently and unanimously speaking out against fornication but never mentions masturbation has got to put some kind of perspective on this. All right? I, given the fact that it's probably inevitable that your kid is going to be involved in this, be very careful about how, how much you up the ante in terms of trying to guilt them out of it or in terms of trying to make them not do that. See, so what can happen is this. What can happen is this. 
I mean, a lot of things can happen, but, but if the kid gets in the message, okay, when I do this, then that's the same as adultery and fornication. Well, then, I might as well just fornicate. Why stop here? You go on sin binges. Well, I've already blown it. I might as well go all the way. You know, I, you know, or, or if this is as bad as fornication and adultery, then it doesn't matter what I think when I'm masturbating. It's already a sin, as much of a sin as it's ever going to be. Go full-fledged with it. Get involved in the relationship. Or they can come to the conclusion that this is so heinous and bad that they declare war on their own sexuality. They think their own sexuality is something that's putrid and vile and yicky, and they can't stop it, which makes them hate it all the more. And you don't want that to happen either because on the wedding night all of a sudden they're supposed to just enjoy their sexuality and instead they've internalized all sorts of negative stuff. If you see it's wrong, I just want to say this. Have, use a lot of wisdom in how you apply it to yourself and in how you apply it to others. A lot of wisdom in how you say that and how you reinforce that and make a very clear distinction that, that even if it's wrong, it's not the same thing as, as adultery and fornication. A second thing is this. We usually associate, most people associate masturbation with all forms of pornography and vile thinking and lustful intentions and whatever. And maybe usually it is associated with that. But I wonder, along with Dr. James Dobson, if it has to be associated with that. Maybe one of the reasons why it's usually associated with that, even among Christians, is because the church has never offered a different alternative. And it's because of this all-or-nothing kind of a thinking. Well, you might as well go all the way. And so the mind in this degenerate state goes all the way. But Dr. James Dobson says this. Is it possible to maybe construe masturbation as a natural way of preparing and rehearsing for marriage? Getting in touch with your own sexuality, getting in touch with what that's going to be like when you get married. From the age of 13 on, maybe even earlier, people are thinking about marriage. You know, they're thinking about it. And most people, now it's not, some people have the gift of not thinking about that. That's fine, the Bible says. But most people, most people think about that. And you think about, what will he be like? What will she be like? You know, what will it be, you know, a shared life together? How romantic, how wonderful, and what kind of house, and we're going to have kids. And, and you're, pre you're preparing yourself mentally, emotionally, physically, you're preparing for that. Dr. James Dobson suggests that maybe masturbation is kind of a rehearsal for that. Your, your body is preparing for that. It's a natural thing. It's kicking into gear. And you're getting in touch with yourself and getting in touch with uh, your sexuality and, and whatever. And that was not a double entendre. I just caught that. <laughs> and in this light, and I'm just, this is my advice. In this light, maybe the thing to do would be to say, to say, you know what, try to be disciplined in your mind. There's a, a big distinction, perhaps, between masturbating with all sorts of vile, excess fantasy in her head and thinking about a marriage, sexuality in a committed relationship. Maybe we can make a distinction there. And in the latter case, see it as a, a natural sort of preparation for marriage. Now, this is stuff you've got to kind of work out on your own, okay? But I'm, I'm just kind of laying out what I think are some biblical principles about it. Feel free to disagree with me, but feel free to take it if it, if it works. All in all, it comes down to this, last word. God calls us to bring every thought captive unto Jesus Christ. All of our actions, all of our motivation captive unto Jesus Christ. And that involves the beauty of the sexual beings that he's made us to be. Let me pray. Father, we together thank you for the beautiful gift of sexuality that you gave us. What a cool design. What a cool design that you'd just... Manifest your own unity and ecstasy in a relationship between a husband and a wife, and it's beautiful. 
And I pray, Lord God, that you would, this morning, be about consecrating us to you in our sexuality, Lord. I pray, Lord God, for those who are here this morning and have maybe even this morning been involved in, in sexual relationships that do not honor you, I pray, Lord God, that they would open their heart for forgiveness, that they would feel a compulsion to go and sin no more, that they would feel forgiven, redeemed, and spotless, Lord God. And for every wound that is here this morning that either we caused to ourselves or we caused to other people or was caused to us, Lord God, that is based on sexuality, Lord, I pray for healing. I pray your spirit would be operating in a wonderful way to bring about healing and restoration and healing in marriages, Lord God, where sexual sin has hurt marriages. I pray, Lord God, for those troubled marriages that you begin to bring a, a healing there, Lord God. Rejuvenate the love. Rejuvenate the passion and the drive. And for those, Lord God, who are single, I pray that you give them the power to live chaste, give them the wisdom to know how to deal with their own sexuality, that they may glorify you in, in their singleness, that they may later glorify you in their marriages. We pray in your name. Amen.